Hi. Welcome back. Here's a brief summary of what we plan to cover in this course this semester. Week one. The first week is a critical week that sets the stage for the rest of the semester. We begin with a very quick review of Java fundamentals that are covered in CSC 1110 software development. If it has been a while since you've developed software in Java, be sure to dedicate several hours this week to refresh your memory. The first lab assignment is based on information you should already know from previous coursework. So getting started on the first lab is a great way to refresh your memory and confirm you have the foundational knowledge needed to be successful in this course. Regardless of whether you have used Java recently, I recommend that you study Chapter 1 and Appendix A in the textbook. It has a nice review of many of the Java language concepts you will need to know for this course. Appendix B1 has a very brief summary of UML diagrams, and you may also find the UML class diagrams Taylorial page useful. If the first lab assignment is challenging for you, please ask for help in office hours. Also, plan to dedicate sufficient time for future lab assignments. Week 2. This week, we dive fully into the world of graphical user interfaces. We will begin exploring the JavaFX framework. It consists of several packages with many classes that support building graphical user interfaces, or GUIs. While you may never build a JavaFX application as a working professional, the concepts we will cover will make it easy for you to develop applications with graphical user interfaces, including web applications and mobile applications. We'll begin with organizing the layout of components in our user interface. Then we'll give life to those layouts with a new programming concept, event-driven programming. Event-driven programming requires a shift in thinking. Instead of controlling the flow of our program through conditional statements, event-driven programs spend most of the time waiting for the user to interact with the user interface. The program then responds to those actions. This week, we will see how to make graphical components responsive. For example, we would like to be able to specify what code should run when a button is clicked or when the Enter key is pressed in a text field. What we would like to do is specify the method to be called when an event, for example a button click, occurs. Passing a method as an argument to another method may seem impossible, but we will see how Java supports this through functional interfaces. Along the way, we will review inner classes and introduce anonymous inner classes as well as lambda expressions. These language constructs provide a more concise way to represent an object that implements a functional interface. This will also set us up nicely for the next topic, functional programming, which we'll talk about next week. Week 3, functional programming. Functional programming is all about describing what you want done, but not necessarily how to make it happen. Before we get to functional programming, we'll take a look at FXML. FX markup language. FXML is a powerful tool that allows us to describe what we want our graphical user interfaces to look like without needing to specify exactly how the graphical user interface should be built. Specifically, we do not need to tell Java the order in which each component will be instantiated. Instead, we specify, for example, that we want three buttons and a VBox. The FXML loader is responsible for figuring out in what order to instantiate all the graphical user interface components. 
the Scene Builder application provides a graphical tool for generating FXML files. FXML also facilitates a common design pattern for GUI applications known as Model View Controller. The basic idea is that we want to compartmentalize our business logic that's in the model, the UI components, and the interactions between the UI and the model. That's the controller. We will cover FXML fairly quickly because the real way to learn it is to actually make use of it. We will have several lab assignments this semester that will give you more experience building GUI applications using FXML. Again, the big topic for this week is functional programming. Functional programming is often thought of as an alternative to object-oriented programming. Java and many other modern languages provide language constructs that support both functional and object-oriented approaches. The key feature with OO is to be able to encapsulate data and behavior together. The key feature with functional programming is to treat functions, for example, that is, methods, as data. As you saw last week with the event-driven programming, it is possible to pass a reference to a method implementation. Really, it was a reference to an object that implemented a functional interface. Essentially, we are now able to pass behavior as an argument to a method, or even return behavior from a method. Given this ability to treat behavior as data allows us to rethink how we organize and implement our code. That's what this week is all about. If this seems very foreign to you at first, don't fret. With a bit, or maybe a lot, of practice, this approach will start to feel more natural. Week four. While we continue to make use of JavaFX in several lab assignments throughout the semester, we are now ready to move on to data structure topics. Arrays and array lists are data structures, so you have already had an opportunity to use data structures, but there are many other ways to store collections of data. We will explore several other ways in the weeks ahead. At this point, we have covered nearly all of the programming constructs, so this will be an excellent opportunity for you to continue to reinforce your ability to develop software without new concepts being tossed on top of what you already have learned. The new concepts for the remainder of this term will be more conceptual in nature. While software construction, what we did last term and so far this term, are fundamental to computer engineering, computer science, and software engineering, it's really the sweet spot for engineers. The more conceptual topics we'll discuss the rest of this term are fundamental to computer engineering, computer science, and software engineering, but they are really the sweet spot for computer science. If you are more energized by the topics we've already covered, it may be a signal that computer or software engineering is a better fit for you. If you're more energized by the topics we will cover the rest of this term, it may be a signal that computer science is a better fit for you. When dealing with large amounts of data, it is critical that the algorithms that process this data do not get really slow as the amount of data fed to the algorithms gets large. We will discuss a technique known as asymptotic time complexity, or big O notation, that gives us a measure of the efficiency of an algorithm as a function of the amount of data it processes. We will also look at in the internals of the ArrayList class and build our own simple version. Week 5. The main highlight of this week is the first hour exam. 
This will be an opportunity to show off what you know about JavaFX, event handling, functional programming, asymptotic time complexity, and array lists. The exam will be on paper, so make sure you are ready to write code without the help of an IDE. In addition to reviewing your notes, I recommend you ensure that you're comfortable with all of the weekly outcomes from the outcomes page. Many students benefit from taking practice exams as a way of studying. Lab time this week will be dedicated to practice answering exam-like questions. Week 6. You should get your first exam back this week. If you did well on it, great. If not, it may or may not be cause for alarm. Please come see me. I would like to discuss what we can do to help you be successful in this course. This week we will discuss our second data structure, the linked list. A linked list is a way of storing a collection of data. The way we interact with a linked list is very similar to the way we interact with ArrayLists. They both implement the list interface, but how the data is stored internally is actually very different. In addition to implementing our own simplified version of the Java Util linked list, we will look at several advantages and disadvantages of the linked list and ArrayList classes. Understanding the differences between references and primitive types will be very helpful when implementing our simplified linked list class. Also, I recommend drawing lots of pictures as you think through how these methods are implemented. Doing so will help make the conceptual parts easier to understand. We will learn that calling get to access the middle element of a linked list is not very efficient because we need to visit half of the elements in the linked list just to get to the middle element. If we are just looping through all of the elements in a linked list, this results in a big O of n squared behavior, which we would like to avoid. Iterators are a way to do that. An iterator allows us to move efficiently from one element to the next element through a collection. This week, we'll look at how to implement iterators for the ArrayList and LinkList classes. Week 7. This week, we will discuss unit tests that can be used to ensure that the individual methods we implement behave as intended. We will make use of a common framework, JUnit, to develop tests. Test-driven development, sometimes known as TDD, is one approach to software development that uses the following process. First, Design your classes, that is, define the method signatures. Second, write tests that ensure that the methods work as expected. At this point, all of your tests will fail. Third, implement the methods so that all of the tests pass. A key advantage of this approach is that by designing the tests first, you have a very clear understanding of what the method needs to do before you start implementing it. This reduces the chances that you end up implementing a mostly functional version of the method only to discover that you missed a key component of its functionality. At that point, it's tempting to just add hacks for the special cases that you ne neglected to consider in your original implementation, rather than starting over with a more coherent implementation that incorporates all requirements. On large-scale projects, having unit tests can be critical. Without these tests, it can be very risky to make changes to the code since those changes could result in breaking expected behavior without anyone knowing about it until much later. If tests exist, developers can make changes to the code with confidence that the unit tests will verify that the expected original behavior has not changed. This week, we will also cover two new interfaces, the stack and the queue interfaces. 
Both of these interfaces can be implemented with either an array list or a linked list, although from a performance perspective, there may be a clearly superior choice. In addition, we will implement the queue interface with a circular queue data structure. A circular queue is an efficient implementation of the queue interface that has a fixed capacity. Week 8. This week is dedicated to recursion. Recursive methods are methods that call themselves. A recursive method must have two components, a recursive case and a base case. The recursive case is a case where a minimal amount of work is combined with the result of calling the method again on a slightly smaller input. The base case defines what to do instead of calling the method again. The way you approach solving problems with recursion is very different. The key to solving problems recursively is to figure out how to break the original problem into a slightly smaller problem that if you knew the answer to the smaller problem would allow you to solve the original problem with just a little bit more work. For example, consider the task of calculating the sum of all the integers between 1 and q. Obviously, we could write a loop to calculate this, but if we knew the answer to the sum of all of the integers between 1 and q minus 1, we could easily calculate the sum of the integers between 1 and q as q plus the sum of the integers between 1 and q minus 1. Much like functional programming, thinking in a recursive way may seem very unnatural at first. With practice, it can feel more natural. Week 9. This week, we meet our next data structure, the binary search tree. A binary search tree is implemented using nodes like we did with a linked list but we do not connect the nodes to elements next to each other in the list. Instead, we develop a structure that has parents and children and is organized in a way that allows us to add, remove, and find elements in a much more efficient way than is possible with the linked list and array list implementations. We will find that it is much easier to think about the implementation of a binary search tree by using recursion, so that will get reinforced this week. In addition to the binary search tree, we'll think about binary trees and non-binary trees. We will also discuss tree traversal methods. Week 10. I'm going to describe what my section is doing. Many of the sections will be taking an exam this week, and what I describe here will be covered in week 11. But for my students, two additional interfaces are introduced this week, the set interface and the map interface. The set interface is very similar to the collection interface, but does not allow duplicates to be stored in the set. The set interface could be implemented with an array list or a linked list by overriding the add methods to prevent duplicate values from being added. However, since we would need to call contains to make sure that the value was not already in the list, all add methods would be at least big O of n methods. The binary search tree is an ideal data structure to implement the set interface since it does not allow duplicates and has an efficient way to add values. A map stores data in a similar way to a set except that every element added to the map consists of a key value pair. You can think of a map as essentially a set with the key being the element stored in the set but the key also maps to a value. Because the elements of a map consist of a key-value pair, the map interface does not extend the collection interface. Hash tables are also introduced this week. Hash tables are an amazing data structure because, subject to a few fairly realistic assumptions, 
add, remove, and contains can be implemented as big O of one methods. In order to attain this amazing feat, they typically require more space. The hash table implementation in the Java Collections framework makes use of a load factor to manage the amount of excess space used by the hash table. The basic idea is to transform each object that you want to store in your hash table into an integer value. We then use that integer value as the index into an array. If our transformation is constant time, we can find the location where the object is stored in constant time since indexing into the array is a constant time operation. However, since we only allocate a finite amount of space for the array, we need to constrain the integer value to a valid index in a, this hash table. There is a very real possibility that two objects will map to the same integer value. When two objects map to the same index, we call this a collision. We will discuss multiple techniques for handling these collisions. One is called open addressing and consists of a, a wide variety of, of techniques. And then the other is called chaining. Those are two methods we'll use for handling collisions. Week 11. This week is another show-off week. The focus this week is on our second exam. The exam will focus on material since the first exam. Linked lists, iterators, stacks, queues, circular queues, binary trees, binary search trees, testing, recursion, sets, maps, and hash tables. While originally covered prior to the first exam, we have continued to do asymptotic time complexity analysis, so you should be ready to answer Big O related questions. Week 12. This week we look at an important computer science problem, sorting. We will discuss several sorting algorithms and describe advantages and disadvantages of each. We will look at two very simple strategies, selection sort. Basic idea here is to search through the list for the smallest entry and swap it with the first element. Then search through the remaining elements in the list for the second smallest and swap it with the second element and can you continue on until you get to the end. Each iteration increases the number of elements sorted by one. We further know that the first m sorted elements are the m smallest elements in the list. That is, if we're to stop partway through, we'll know that we have the smallest elements in the entire list at the beginning of the list. We stop when all of the elements have been sorted. The second strategy we'll look at is insertion sort. Here the basic idea is we start by comparing the first and second element, swapping if the second element is smaller. We then compare the third element to the second element, swapping if the third element is smaller. If we swapped, we then compare the second with the first and swap if necessary. We continue that swapping process until the element before is smaller. Much like selection sort, each iteration increases the number of sorted elements by one. However, in this case, when we are partway through sorting, we do not know if the first element is the smallest element of the entire list. We progressively look at more complicated sorting algorithms. Shell sort is a modified version of insertion sort that improves performance. Merge sort is a recursive divide and conquer approach that achieves big O of n log n performance in the worst case. 
If we have time, we'll also look at TIM sort and QuickSort. Both of these sorting algorithms are implemented in the Java Standard Library. Week 13. This week, we revisit asymptotic time complexity analysis, applying more mathematical rigor to our approach. We will introduce the concept of asymptotic space complexity. The amount of space required for an algorithm to operate may grow as a function of the amount of data it needs to process. We can employ the same approach to space that we employed with time. Knowing the big O space requirements can help weigh the relative merits of different algorithms. We will also explore what it means to copy a reference. We will distinguish between shallow and deep copies and discuss different techniques for making deep copies of an object. Week 14. This week, we will discuss how to rebalance a binary tree. We do this by making use of tree rotations. Rotating on a node is a constant time algorithm that can increase the height of the left subtree while decreasing the height of the right subtree, or vice versa. Armed with the ability to rotate subtrees, we discuss two common approaches for maintaining balanced binary search trees, AVL trees and red-black trees. AVL trees are slightly simpler conceptually, but red-black trees can be implemented more efficiently. Week 15. This week, we wrap up all of the concepts we've talked about this semester. We will not spend much time discussing developing graphical user interfaces. Hopefully, you've had enough practice with that through several lab assignments. Instead, we will revisit asymptotic time complexity and all of the various data structures we've worked with this semester. This course will be a success if, when you need to store large amounts of data and memory, you will effectively consider the trade-offs associated with the various data structure choices available to you. This should be a two-step process. Selecting the appropriate interface is your first step. Once that is determined, you will want to think about which methods will be called frequently and the time complexity associated with those calls. Of course, we will also spend some time preparing for the final exam. Bye!